lots of our competitors are out there concluding bilateral or regional free trade agreements. We can't take our eye off the fact that our competitive position is declining. We're really falling behind here. We have to have a seat at the table. We used to be the dominant player in corn exports to the world, and that has just been chipped away year after year. Hello and welcome to Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I will be introducing your host, Association CEO John Doggett. You can join John every month as he travels the country on a mission to advocate for America's corn farmers. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we'll make sure that the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them, with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. The passage and adoption of the USMCA trade agreement comes as some relief to the U.S. corn industry, where an ongoing trade war has been hitting growers hard. And there are other trends impacting our markets as well. So in this episode, a look at the global trade stories that you need to be aware of from two of the world's foremost experts, former USTR chief agricultural negotiator and former USDA deputy undersecretary Ambassador Darcy Vetter, and Ryan Legrand, the CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. If you haven't yet, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast in your favorite app. That way, you can take us with you in your truck, your tractor, or on your next trip and never miss an update from John. Also, make sure you follow the NCGA on Twitter, at National Corn, and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association email newsletter at ncga.com. And with that, it's time to once again introduce John. John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. John, if we hop into the Wayback Machine and time travel back to the heady days of, oh, let's see, about five months ago, before the coronavirus story stole all the headlines, the USMCA trade agreement was a really important developing story in the news that we were following very closely. That has since passed and taken effect, and we finally get to cover this ground on your podcast. After eight episodes, we're finally going to talk about trade. You know, and given the importance of this topic to our industry, to our country, it's kind of hard to believe it's taken us this long. But, you know, a lot of things got in the way. So, as they say, good things happen to those who wait. And we have a very good podcast in store for us today. We have two outstanding guests. And uh, joining us today is former uh, U.S. Trade Rep, Chief Agricultural Negotiator, and former Deputy Undersecretary of Agriculture, Darcy Better, and U.S. Grains Council uh, CEO, Ryan Legrand. So welcome to both of you. Suffice to say, I think the two of you probably know just a little bit about global trade. So with that, Darcy, give us a thumbnail bio. Sure. So as you already mentioned, I spent much of my career working in government and uh, most recently as uh, your chief agriculture negotiator during the Obama administration uh, at the U.S. Trade Representative. And just before that, as deputy undersecretary at USDA, where I also oversaw the Foreign Agricultural Service. So a lot of my career has been spent in agriculture trade negotiation and trade promotion. Uh, after uh, I left the administration in early 2017, I did some consulting around trade, but now work for Edelman. 
a global communications firm where I work with food and beverage companies and other companies engaged in global trade and uh, help them on public policy issues, on traceability and compliance with sustainability mandates, a number of those issues that will be familiar to your audience as well that are more and more prevalent when we look at markets for uh, food and ag products. And I know that you are not a Washington, D.C. native. Oh, yes. Important part. Uh, I am not. I am a Nebraska farm girl. My folks uh, have a farm and my my extended family actually has a farm uh, about 20 miles east of Grand Island, Nebraska. Okay. Well, certainly glad to have you with us today. And so, Ryan, tell us about Ryan. Sure. Well, I've been at the Grains Council for five years now, and uh, I come from a background of trading. I I traded my whole career, uh, mainly distillers, grains, and a lot of other ingredients, mainly trading to Mexico and to several Asian destinations. You know, it's been a real change from the trade coming to the Grains Council and having the opportunity to work directly with producers for the first time in my career, just really enjoy it and and feel that there's a great deal of purpose in the work that we carry out the council. So it's it's been a nice transition from actually being involved in in making the trades executing the trades and then coming to this area of market development and policy work it's it's been a nice change uh to the uh, to my career and, and and really enjoyed it well thanks and thanks for being on the podcast so darcy we're going to kick it to you you know we talk about these trade negotiations and you know, I think a lot of us probably assume that they're real easy. Tell us about the, what's the basic process of getting, not trying to get, but getting a new trade agreement in place? Well, it's, um, I think when we talk about trade negotiations or negotiating a free trade agreement with other countries, we often think about the with other countries part, but these negotiations really happen on several levels. And there's a whole set of negotiation that has to go on domestically before you ever really approach your foreign counterpart. And that's, you know, figuring out the analysis. What do we have to gain from trade with a country? What does our current relationship look like? Where do we think we should focus? Where Which tariffs are most important? Which other barriers are most important to try and address in an agreement? And you have to get support, support from the corn growers, support from Congress, uh, support from other sectors of the economy, the chambers of commerce, um, the tech sector, uh, our services providers. Um, when we do uh, trade negotiation with another country, it really addresses all products and services. And it addresses things like transparency and rulemaking and intellectual property protection and many other areas of, of policy. And so really understanding your starting point, your priorities, and then getting buy-in is sort of the first set of um, priorities in a negotiation. And from that, understanding what your priorities are, then you think about what is going to be your opening salvo with that other country. And, you know, of course, we have in the United States trade promotion authority, sort of the rules under which we negotiate um, and that Congress uses to designate authority to negotiate to the executive branch and to USTR. So there are a number of notifications that we have to give to Congress. We have to outline sort of our strategy, our priorities in accordance with that. And so launching a new negotiation is a multi-month process to really be prepared for that first meeting. 
And then that first meeting uh, requires getting to know your negotiator on the other side, um, getting to know their priorities, understanding the process they went through. So when you hear their first set of demands, what they want from us, you understand what went into that and you have a sense of their politics and their priorities when you start exchanging that that information. Um, and it won't surprise you that when we lay down our priorities, they're probably, you know, and what they lay down for us, whatever country that may be, you don't get agreement that first round, right? And so there's a constant set of recalibration where our priority that we want from them might be the hardest thing politically for them to do. And at the end of any negotiation, both the United States and Japan or Brazil or whatever country it might be, will have to also pass the agreement through their political process. So it you have to understand their sort of room to maneuver, just like you have to understand your own room to maneuver and find the best possible set of, of solutions in there. All the while, as you learn more about those partners and what's important to them and what you think is doable in their system, then you come back and you brief groups like the corn growers or and you brief Congress again and say, here's the ideal we started with. Here's the realm of the possible. How do we proceed to get the outcome that U.S. farmers or, you know, U.S. manufacturers of widget X or Y, what could you best use? And so which direction should we push? So it's really a multi-level negotiation that you're recalibrating at all times until you get to yes. Getting to that end point on the art of the possible, always, always very, very difficult. And it always takes so much longer than you think. So, <laughs> yes. so Darcy, what in your experiences, you've had a lot of experiences in, in this area. What, what surprised you the most about the process? Well, I think when I just started out negotiating, and this is really just a negotiation and a trust issue. What surprised me a bit about the dynamics of negotiation is sometimes you feel like if you're just really prepared, like you have all the numbers, you think you've built the relationships behind the scenes, if you're really prepared that the negotiation will be easier because you'll be able to pull a fast one or like to know something they don't know and reach an agreement that's really advantageous for you. And what you learn early on is that it can be tougher in the beginning and more nuanced and perhaps more frustrating when the other side is really prepared, but that when your negotiating counterpart actually understands the room to maneuver and actually understands what will be required to implement the agreement, you're better off. And I think what we're seeing in some of the negotiations we're doing today that working toward a quick win or a short-term result um, seems advantageous, but when you negotiate trade agreements, you're negotiating the future relationship. It's not what you sell tomorrow, it's what are the terms of trade for tomorrow? How do you relate to one another? And so if you're not very clear on what those terms are, and if there really isn't political will to implement, then the uncertainty that you're supposed to be getting rid of in a trade agreement and make things transparent and clear and you know obvious what's what the terms of trade are going to be just creeps back in because the other country can't implement well or didn't really understand um, the politics or the mechanics that were going to be required. And so a really prepared partner 
um, is actually a real asset in negotiations. Ambassador Lighthizer recently said he'd be willing to get rid of bilateral trade in favor of a functioning multilateral trade liberalization, something like resuming WTO uh, negotiating rounds, and actually maybe even possibly getting some, some progress out of that. I'm going to ask both of you, Darcy first and then Ryan, should we be focusing on, on bilaterals or regional free trade agreements, or should we revive the multinational trade negotiation process? I mean, all of the above, right? I mean, I, I have to say I found it a little surprising after months of seeing this administration question whether we should even be in the WTO to suddenly say that multilateral negotiations were the way to go. You know, in the campaign as well, President Trump was very clear that we shouldn't do these regional deals because it undermined our leverage. And so exactly what the strategy is here is a little bit unclear to me. But, you know, I think that, first of all, I think the last couple of years have really seen a muddying of the vocabulary we use in trade, where we talk about trade agreements. When we used to talk about a trade agreement, it was a comprehensive free trade agreement with another country. So all tariffs and things like intellectual property and non-tariff barriers, we tried to really address them. We talk a lot about doing agreements now, you know, renegotiating an agreement with Korea. Well, we had an underlying FTA and we changed a few provisions or doing an agreement with Japan where we addressed only a subset of tariffs. Agriculture happened to be some of them, but it wasn't a comprehensive agreement. So what Ambassador Lighthizer means about what a trade agreement is, I think that's not entirely clear. But we have had bilateral negotiations to solve specific trade problems. Think about all the agreements we did to reopen markets to U.S. beef, for example, after BSE. Those were smaller, specific agreements where we engaged bilaterally to solve problems. Cannot stop doing that. We send too many products to too many countries where we have to keep problem solving all the time. Then there were bilateral free trade agreement negotiations. We did free trade agreements with Korea. We had negotiated the TPP, which was more of a regional agreement. And then you have the full multilateral type negotiations that you do in the WTO. You know, the WTO is in a tough place. We have no functioning appellate body because the United States will not approve new appellate body judges. We have strong calls for reform. We have a big division between commitments that developing versus developed countries take on and how you classify those countries. So yes, I think we would all like to get back to the negotiating table at the WTO, but I think there's a lot of process work in the institution itself. And frankly, some care and attention needed to sort of the day-to-day um, functioning of the WTO and how we uh, interpret and enforce those rules where we need to be more actively and more constructively engaged. But meanwhile, lots of our competitors are out there concluding bilateral or regional free trade agreements. The TPP-11 you know, went ahead without the United States when we pulled back and have now implemented an agreement, low and lowered tariffs to each other. Uh, and that group includes lots of our competitors and key agricultural exports. The EU is concluding FTAs right and left and gaining access to markets that we don't have as preferential access to. So um, we can't take our eye off the fact that 
our competitive position is declining. We're really falling behind here by not doing these bilateral or regional engagements and and forging those agreements. So we have to be more multilaterally engaged and work on reforming and strengthening and advancing the WTO. We have to have a more offensive agenda and conclude new free trade agreements. And we have to strengthen our bilateral relationships and solve problems with the trading partners we already have to make sure that existing trade runs smoothly. I completely agree with Darcy. We have to have a seat at the table, especially as we look at eroding market share around the world. We used to be the dominant player in corn exports to the world, and that has just been chipped away year after year. And now as we look to enter trade agreements or exit them as we have, we're not at the table. As Darcy mentioned, we lose influence. We lose uh, the opportunity to help set the rules in that region. Uh, If you look, 55% of our exports of grains in all forms, so that's corn, barley, sorghum, ethanol, DDG, meat products, 55% of those go to countries with whom we have a free trade agreement. So that just shows you the importance of entering into these agreements right there. The numbers don't lie. Darcy, you know, what are some of the dynamics outside of agriculture that drive trade policy. I Certainly, we've seen a lot of, you, you alluded to it earlier, a lot of change since the, the 2016 election. But what are the dynamics outside of ag that, that really do drive those decisions? Well, I think right now you see a huge emphasis on particular manufacturing sectors. And that has been you know stressed from the last presidential campaign to now that there's been concern about jobs and competitiveness in the automobile sector. That was really the driving force behind three and a half years of renegotiating NAFTA into USMCA, um, and particularly some of the labor provisions behind that. Steel and aluminum tariffs, what was driving that in part was overcapacity and subsidization of those sectors by China, which were of and continue to be of real concern, not just to the United States, but to a number of our allies as well. Um, but looking at at jobs in the steel and aluminum sector and what the impact was having on uh, producers of those metals in the United States. Um, I think the troubling thing about focusing on those particular sectors, not that they're not worthy of our focus, is that depending on the tactics you use, um, implementing tariffs as a a first, an opening salvo rather than a last resort, for example, means that the users of those products find themselves then at a disadvantage as we try to increase the advantage or the competitiveness of the the producers and our global supply chains um, for even, you know, those basic inputs like steel and aluminum are now so complex and the types of steel and aluminum are so, you know, particularly specified uh, and where they're produced that it's very difficult to just say, I'm going to put this tariff in place and it's going to be helpful to these jobs and throughout the supply chain without doing damage elsewhere. So certainly I think in this country, the focus on those those sectors has really driven trade policy. But the other area of trade policy that really needs development and where I would love to see us get back to the table in the WTO and think about how we develop truly global rules here is the development of the digital economy. And the fact that when the WTO came to be, it didn't even exist. 
And this is one of the positive things about incorporating the provisions of the TPP that were negotiated and putting those in USMCA was really an attempt to deal with e-commerce and the digital economy um, and updating some of those trade rules to be consistent with the way trade is conducted right now and the fact that so many products are traded but also services delivered virtually now. Um, and, you know, we're doing this virtually today. The whole, uh, everyone's gone virtual. Uh, COVID has really driven that as well. And so figuring out how to tax digital taxation, you know, the U.S. just announced a potential $1.3 billion in tariffs on France if it moves ahead with its digital taxes on digital companies uh, based in the United States. So what should the rules be for how we tax and otherwise regulate and protect privacy and, you know, deal with all the issues that come with that part of the economy. So, you know, and climate is another. How are we going to measure and account for and be able to actively trade in things like carbon credits and do so consistent with other trade rules and not have those credits become just barriers to trade, but opportunities for new sources of income for U.S. farmers, for example. So those to me are three areas that really stick out is that there's an overlap of kind of looking to more traditional trade in goods, this overlap of trade and industrial policy where we have to look at subsidies and and trade in traditional inputs like steel, aluminum, look at jobs in the auto sector. And then there are these emerging issues, which is the link between uh, trade and environment um, issues like digital trade that really need some attention so that we have clear rules of the road. Ryan Legrand, uh, CEO of the U.S. Grains Council, describe the state of global trade for corn today. And how has that changed since you started as a trader Low these many years ago. Yeah, uh, complex is, is is about the most simplistic way I can put it. We have more competition than we've ever seen. Uh, we're seeing a great deal of protectionism with the advent of anti-dumping and CBD cases just popping up around the world. We've actually coined a phrase within the U.S. Grains Council called "contagious protectionism." Uh, it seems like. Every time we're turn, we turn around, we're fighting another AD CBD case in one country or another. So those dynamics of, of increased competition and increased protectionism are just a couple of things that I, I don't see going away anytime soon. And as far as changes, boy, there's just been so many changes in my 20 years of working in, in ag trade. Trade of many products to Mexico has increased dramatically since I started trading in the in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. Asia and Southeast Asia has boomed as well uh, with containers going over there. We bring the electronic goods over to the United States and there's a backhaul opportunity for cheap freight uh, to ship our ag goods, uh, grains and distillers grains over to Asia. So that's worked out really well. Uh, China used to be a major corn exporter, major corn exporter, and now they're a net importer and a large one to boot. The entire Asian region, as a matter of fact, has really, really come on the scene. I, I saw an interesting number the other day. The Asian region is on track to top 50% of global GDP by 2040 and drive 40% of the world's consumption. Uh, so when we look at areas of focus, that's one where, where we need to be focusing. You know, we, we talk a, a lot about the emerging Asian market, 
and the emerging African market. But there's another trend that we see more from the political standpoint, and that is economic populism. And I'm going to ask both of you to, to address that. Uh, Darcy Vetter, former ag negotiator for USTR, where do you see some of this populism going that's seemingly spread across the world? Well, I think um, in a way that behavior, uh, Ryan mentioned earlier, the this sort of contagious protectionism, right? When one uh, market sort of walls itself off, the response is sometimes to do the same, then you know, carve out the domestic market in your own country if you can't have access to another. And I think you're seeing some of that same sort of contagion behavior on the populism or the nationalism side. And I think, unfortunately, that COVID has provided more temptation or an excuse for that kind of behavior. But it's very difficult, I think, for any one country to supply the needs, whether they're medical or in food and agriculture or other sectors, fully on their own. And I think there is a tendency to suggest that policy at the border is going to solve these problems rather than a much stronger focus on building domestic supply chains, domestic labor capacity, thinking about the incentives that are there domestically for firms to participate in local, regional, and international markets and not just to import or export. You know, I think it's easiest if there seems to be a shortage of equipment, or if in the case of Vietnam, who put export restrictions, for example, on rice at the beginning of COVID, if the rice isn't making it to the local shelves to shut the border and say, we're going to make sure all the rice stays in Vietnam. Well, if COVID is stressing your internal supply chains, it's interfering with uh, trucking routes, or you know, you can, the people who process or package rice might be ill and not be able to get where they need to go. So the problem might not be trade at all. But closing the border sends a sense of sort of control and a focus on your domestic constituents. Um, it can be very tempting to focus there first. But the fact is that if we want a more competitive manufacturing sector, if we want to think about providing more options and risk management tools and um, strategies for dealing with low commodity prices and interrupted markets for our own farmers, we might want to think about what we're doing with those domestic supply chains, what we're doing in terms of, of risk management tools. Are we encouraging and helping farmers market both locally as well as into international markets? Are we helping them think um, in ways that builds capacity rather than suggesting that just controlling the products in or out will solve the problem? So I think it's tempting for governments everywhere to kind of batten down the hatches, close the borders a little bit and say that they're protecting their domestic constituents. I think our supply chains are far too complex for that. And I think in American agriculture, where we've always been these surplus producers, the negative effects when other countries start doing the same and limiting our access, um, the negative effects of that overwhelm the positive effects pretty quickly. That's right. Unfortunately, when this happens around the world, Agriculture, U.S. agricultural products receive the brunt of the fallout, you know, and, and, and it just does not help our situation. As, as we're looking to correct trade imbalances around the world, if we're out there placing measures on, on other countries, 
first thing they're going to come back at is, is our ag products. It, it just seems to happen every time because that is a major surplus item for us. So it's really hurting us and would like to find a way to move away from it. But it's uh, in today's environment, it's just very difficult. I think that just to go back to that point for a little bit, I mean, the retaliation impact on agriculture really can't be overstated. And, you know, I think Ryan brought that up. Like there's there's both the, the fact that food is emotional. And so when people want to provide some sort of control, when it looks like we're not getting, you know, the meat that we need on our grocery store shelves, the the impulse is to say, well, we should absolutely feed Americans first or, you know, whatever country it might be before we engage in trade. But when we start making trade limiting measures on steel and aluminum, on shoes or clothes or whatever it might be from China, the fact that we are so competitive and we are export dependent as agriculture means we are also the first and the easiest target when countries who face tariffs from us want to hit back and try to change that that policy. And I think what's been hard for me to watch is what that means for farmers who are getting squeezed on both ends. So when we put tariffs in place on steel and aluminum and engines and motors and all the things that farmers need to purchase to make their farms work, and then other countries in retaliation put tariffs on the things that we produce, we pay more to produce it and we get less for the output. And, you know, that really is hard when you're looking at six plus years of low commodity prices before these trade wars started. That's pretty difficult to deal with, but was utterly predictable um, because we know that when retaliation comes, it is often directed squarely at the U.S. ag sector. They know that going there is is a good way to make things hurt. Absolutely. And one, th- one thing about it, farmers are, are not particularly shy about complaining to uh, policymakers when they, they think that they're getting poked at a little bit. So as we're recording this, we're, we're about 120 12, 113 days away from the election. And of course, the the subject of China has been part of the election process. And a lot of it has been discussed by a lot of different campaigns. We're down to two campaigns now. How does China factor into our trade strategy going into what's going to be a very contentious election? Uh, And whether we have a, a second Trump term or a first Biden term, where are we with our strategy? Where are we with our competitiveness uh, in a lot of different places with China? Well, you know, China is, is, is a big factor in markets, no matter the product that, that they're buying at the time. And we've seen some very nice purchases recently, and I'll talk about those in just a second. But we had the phase one deal in place with China. And one of the most important items that I see in phase one is the longer-term overhaul of China's policy on biotech and their approval of biotech events. I think they promised to review and uh, complete the reviews of new biotech events in an average of 24 months uh, versus dragging it out for, for years and years. So if they comply with that section of phase one, that is really going to play into our strategy long-term for China for a long time to come. But short term, they're in the market. They're active. You know, they, they, we did have these uh, purchase agreements that were part of phase one. They, the actual numbers haven't been made public, but they've really made a splash on the scene 
with large corn purchases recently, uh, sorghum as well. We're still waiting on DDG and, and ethanol purchases to come through. But China just made their largest U.S. corn purchase in history last night. And it was the fourth largest sale the U.S. has made to any customer in history. This was a sale of 1.7 million metric tons or just over 69 million bushels. And last week, they bought what was at the time their second largest U.S. corn purchase. It's now the third with, with the action overnight. China is all of a sudden a top four export customer for U.S. corn. And that's for old crop. That's our current old crop. And with today's purchase, which was all new crop, and, and remember, it's, it's early, they are currently our number one customer for new crop corn. So when they're in, they make a big, big difference. When you look at a product like DDG, they're not buying it right now, but they can and do move the market when they're buying. Uh, when I was trading distillers grains, they, they came out of nowhere and started buying massive quantities in 2007, 2008. And from then until the most recent ADCVD case where they levied tariffs on our product and trade ceased, we saw regular bidding wars between China and Mexico for ownership of U.S. distillers' grains. And that's ultimately positive for ethanol margins, uh, positive uh, going back to the U.S. corn farmer. Uh, so they're a big, big factor anytime that they're in the market. So let me back way, way up here. I think there's an at, sort of an agriculture aspect to this, but what you asked about is what is our China strategy? Um, and I have the same question. What is our China strategy? <laughs> um, and trade should only be part of that strategy, right? I mean, we are seeing, you know, mass internment camps in Xinjiang, the new security law in Hong Kong, key elements on, you know, human rights and encouraging democracy and, you know, aggression in the South China Sea. Uh, making new land uh, uh, off of islands and installing, you know, military bases there, investments in African land and the Belt and Road Initiative, where they are inking new relationships and building infrastructure, but infrastructure that's all oriented towards sending supplies back to China and perhaps not in the long term development interests of the countries that are signing on to this because they need the short term development benefits. I'm not sure we have a comprehensive strategy and that we are using our economic and trade conversations to further that strategy, nor do I think, despite the power and the historical leadership of the United States, nor do I think we can do that alone. And we have chosen to take on China bilaterally to pull out these big pieces of leverage with tariffs and to focus those tariffs on getting what I think are very limited results. Do not get me wrong. I think these corn purchases are really important and a billion and a half consumers are always going to influence our ag markets, whether they're buying from us or from our competitors, right? They're going to affect our prices. And so we need to be engaged and we need to be encouraging those transactions. But if you just look at the decline in exports since the beginning of this trade war, we have already paid a lot for a very limited phase one deal. And given where our relationships with China are right now, I'm not sure we're leveraged to get more from that. 
And the underlying reform in their business practices, things like IP theft, you know, massive subsidization, their China 2025 policy for, you know, AI and electric vehicles and a lot of these really lucrative and important industries of the future, we haven't seen any reform there yet. And we've already paid a lot and we've done it by ourselves. So our allies aren't necessarily backing up the things that we're asking for or creating additional points of leverage to drive that reform. And so a real hard look at what our tools of influence are, what we're aiming them at, and where we're paying, that we're aiming it toward getting the kind of payoff we need for a future strategic relationship with a real global power. I would like to see that. And I'm not, I can't really state what our priorities are with China right now, or how each of our points of leverage are being used to drive those priorities. It is not clear to me. You know, second, I think if you look at the areas where we have emphasized in agriculture that we want China to act, again, we focus that on short-term purchases, which for farmers who are really hurting right now is important. Don't get me wrong. I want to see China purchase from the United States. But the fact is, if we really focused on the terms of trade and, again, working with our allies, they would buy from us anyway. We have good product. We deliver it efficiently, and we do it transparently and on time and on spec. There are a lot of reasons countries buy from us. Um, And it's not just because we made them write down a number. It's because we're often a really good place to get your ag products from, right? We're good at this stuff. So... You know, focusing on that number, I fear, is a little bit misplaced. And this corn example is a good one. You know, we spent several years putting together a case at the WTO, again, using our trade infrastructure, working with allies through the trade system to sue China about filling its quota for corn, about reducing its level of agricultural subsidies to its corn farmers that we knew were inefficient. And part of the reason that we chose to do that is we know that within China, they know that putting such a high domestic support price on corn and emphasizing corn production in a country that already has significant agricultural pollution and soil degradation and limited water, corn is probably not where they should be putting so many resources. They need to reform their own ag system. So they needed, I think, external pressure to do the right thing. And by using that trade system, by bringing that case, by continued bilateral interaction, it was a not an open door, but a door with not so much resistance to get to where we needed to be on corn. And we were, I think, making progress there. By putting purchases then as this big political win, did we pay for something they would have done anyway? or where we had already, you know, won that in in the WTO. So I I just again, I think we need to take stock of where these global markets are going, all the different forms of leverage and um, relationships and negotiation we have with these countries and it's not always a high stakes political trade-off that is needed to get the results that we want. And going to a, a new subject As we all know, passage of USMCA, the the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, was our biggest legislative uh, lift over the last few years, and that was successful. Ryan LeGrand, now what? Well, 
We have certainty in our top corn market in Mexico. We have certainty in, in Canada, very, very important market for corn, distillers, grains, and ethanol as well. So uh, it's, it's nice to have a modern and updated agreement. I'm sure, you know, Darcy could, has a, a lot more to say on this than, than I do. I, I'm just glad we didn't have NAFTA canceled and, and get left with no agreement, which I was living in Mexico at the time when, when all this talk of NAFTA, canceling NAFTA was, was starting up and, and lived through that. And boy, it was just a real headache dealing with Mexican customers that were afraid that their number one market, the number one supplier was going away. They started looking to Brazil and Argentina for uh, increased supplies. And we've seen that happen. You know, part of that is, is due to increased competitiveness from the South, but we lost about 10% market share through this whole deal. You know, we used to run 97, uh, 98% market share for corn in Mexico. And now we're, I think this past year, we were in the upper 80s or maybe maybe lower 90s. Maybe it wasn't quite 10%, but uh, it was a hit to our, to our market share. Uh, so I'm glad we have an agreement in place. NAFTA was the, the, probably the best agreement that the U.S. farmer had seen in history. Uh, so it was fantastic. And, and I'm just... Very glad it's not canceled and we have something in place, an updated agreement. Yeah, I mean, I think no disagreement that for Mexico, the United States was just the easiest market of choice, right? We developed a rail line right to their livestock center to deliver our grain, um, which ran just a couple miles from my house in uh, in Nebraska, you know, easy delivery of our, our corn there. Um, strong long-lasting relationships. If you needed agricultural inputs, you got them from your neighbor to the north. And when we renegotiated USMCA, particularly in this sort of contentious environment, that raised questions and it impacted our market share and certainty. But I think when I was kind of making that point early on when we you know, had the threats to pull out of NAFTA and the renegotiation to say, wait a second, this is putting in jeopardy our market share, the questions I got back sometimes inside the Beltway was, well, we still have access to zero tariffs. Like, why does this matter? And I think Ryan really just illustrated that businesses have to try and manage their risk and make good decisions. And what I heard from the ag community was, we used to be able to write six month contracts. They've gone down to 90 day or 30 day terms where we're constantly renegotiating and it's not clear that we'll be supplying these markets in in Mexico at the same price or at the same level um, as we have been. And there are of course transaction costs to all of that. And I think it's, it's true, having been a policy person all my life, not a trader like Ryan was, that when we talk about the terms of trade, are there tariffs or not? What do the rules look like on paper? The people negotiating the terms don't always know what the actual practical parts of trading look like. And I think one of the things that USMCA could teach us is how much the agricultural community and other business communities have to illustrate 
how uncertainty manifests itself in the price you receive, in those terms of contracting, in the paperwork you might have to fill out, um, and that it does make doing business harder when those terms of trade are unclear. It actually is more costly, even if the tariff didn't change. And I learned a lot through this USMCA process as a trade policy person about actually how that uncertainty manifests itself in changing the bottom line for our farmers and ranchers and traders and, you know, processors of widgets who were losing market share because of future uncertainty. And I think that's just a lesson for the corn growers, for the grains council, for others to take away to say, like, spell it out why this consistency is so important and why policymakers need to pay attention. That, that's right. I would just add that during all these discussions of the potential cancellation of NAFTA and tariffs that could come, sellers of U.S. corn started putting into their contract uh, terms that said, you know, if tariffs are levied, these tariffs, will, they will be passed along to the buyer. And that, that really makes the buyer think twice about where they want to buy from. And Ryan, how many countries around the world does the U.S. Grains Council have a presence in? Well, we have... Eight international offices outside of the U.S. We have, uh, plus our, our U.S. office makes nine. Uh, we're looking to add a tenth office in Delhi, India, New Delhi, if we're given the approvals there. So that's our, our, our office. And then we have a full-time presence in 13 additional countries uh, where we have full-time consultants on the ground there. And through that network, we're able to operate and run programs in over 50 countries and the European Union. So we are able to say that we work around the clock every day for the U.S. farmer because we are working in basically every time zone around the world. Okay. And so when you're looking at promoting trade for corn and and corn products around 50-some countries around the world, what makes us competitive and what impedes that competitiveness? You know, our reliability and our consistency are major factors in uh, customers buying U.S. corn. You know what you're getting when you buy from the U.S., and you know when you're going to get it. We don't have the long delays in port where vessels are sitting for 10 to 20, 30 days uh, waiting just to get loaded. We pull our vessels into the Gulf or into the P&W. They load efficiently and they're shipped out and, and go on to their destination. So consistency and reliability is, is very big. Price has been an issue recently. It's, it, we've been with Brazil and Argentina and even Ukraine coming on. They have been able to produce corn as cheap or cheaper than us in, in many cases. And then this year we've been hit by currency fluctuations. With the strength of the U.S. dollar, we've really seen uh, additional problems that, that I guess we haven't seen too much in the past with the Brazilian real that's gone from, uh, it hovered for many years in in the upper threes or four reals to one dollar. It skyrocketed up to nearly six reals to one dollar. So that just increases uh, Brazil's competitiveness uh, in a big way. And it's it's really hurt us this year. And this is an issue, Ryan, that you and and I have discussed and, and our staffs have discussed but I'd, I'd like to take from, from both you and, and Darcy, what role does sustainability or, or production practices play in market acceptance and the marketability of corn around the world? 
Sure, that's that's something we're starting to explore. Uh, we're doing that together with with NCGA. NCGA started a, a task force on this, and we're trying to dovetail into it right now and and add a little input and create a healthy discussion there. And we have we have people with strong opinions on this on on both sides. My thought is that the world is moving towards more sustainable practices. Companies are starting to demand it. And the U.S. corn farmers worked very hard to be more sustainable each year for, for decades now. So why not showcase that? Why not tell our story? You know, my thought is that if we have a way to showcase the U.S. farmer sustainable practices without asking him or her to change their operation or telling them how to run their operation, if we can do that, we should. Uh, sustainability, I think, is going to be an issue in areas like the EU and maybe Japan and other more prosperous countries, you could say. And then I think the developing countries and even third world countries might take a little bit longer to, uh, to come on and really place a value on sustainability. But if we can get ahead of the curve and showcase what the U.S. farmer is doing, I think we should be doing it. Um, you know, I think whether it's sustainability mandates or other things that could segment corn and other ag product markets, I think we need to look at this as a potential opportunity for farmers. The story behind food, the story behind all products in terms of their environmental footprint is going to continue to be desired by consumers and may be required by governments who are trying to meet their commitments in terms of environmental benchmarks, um, you know, carbon commitments, that kind of thing. So I think it's coming, right? And whether the U.S. takes on a commitment or not, if other countries do, and if companies who operate in multiple markets and are going to want to contribute to those kinds of targets are taking them on, then all of their suppliers will need to be helping in achieving that goal. So, you know, whatever you feel about the Paris Accord, whatever you think should be U.S. policy, the fact is we are global suppliers of corn. And so we can't ignore the fact that people want to know the story behind their food and are going to want to know the sort of environmental accounting behind the products that they're consuming, whether as fuel or feed or food. But I think there are a lot of, you know, at the same time that we're paying more attention to the environmental cost of or benefits of our products, there's also all of this development of technology to help us track that in ways that are consistent and less burdensome. And, you know, if we can find a platform that allows farmers to be able to track that in a way that's more efficient so that they can then market their product in the way that captures the most value for their effort. I think that's really a guiding question for our overall farm policy and for industry to try and get its hands around. Because I see huge potential, not just for the carbon credits associated with your corn, but toward really matching buyers and sellers in a more granular way. So instead of just hauling all of your corn and sending it to uh, the local elevator, can you segment that? And can you be selling a certain starch corn? Can you be selling identity preserved corn, whether it's organic or non-GM or GM with particular qualities, right? That now that we're looking at a new generation of biotech that might be able to have nutritional traits and benefits 
habits. You know, I think our commodities are in a way being decommoditized, both on environmental and on other quality grounds. And so how can we figure out what that means for farmers and their ability to market those products that brings value all the way back to the farm? And that to me is just a fascinating question as we think about policy and how we can support um, new and diversified streams of income, as well as the environmental and nutritional benefits that might come with doing that. Um, so I think it's really exciting if you take the question back to sort of how have we structured our markets in a way that we can achieve these multiple goals. Ryan Legrand and Darcy Vetter, what are the biggest opportunities for corn short-term and then long-term? Well, short-term, I think you've got to look at the China sales. I mean, we have our usual suspects in Mexico, Japan, even Korea. You know, they're really driving the, the bulk of, of corn sales as they have for many years. But China has been absent in recent years, and now they're here. So when we're looking at short-term, I think that's, that's where the opportunity lies to add incremental volumes. But longer-term, Asia in general, South Asia is up and coming, and Southeast Asia will continue to strengthen. You've got Vietnam in that region. I think they're the world's largest corn importer. Uh, we get very little uh, share of that. A lot of that goes to South America. So any incremental volume that we can get into Vietnam, where they're a real powerhouse in the region, that, that would be good for us long term. We can't forget about Sub-Saharan Africa and the tremendous population and middle-class growth that's expected there. I think Nigeria is the is up at the top of the list when you're looking at population and middle-class growth over the next uh, several years. So they're going to be a focus. We're starting to negotiate a free trade agreement with Kenya. So that'll be one to keep an eye on as well. No disagreement there. I don't know what is how you define short and, and long term. I think in terms of selling corn and corn products, absolutely having a bit more certainty in our relationship with China and focusing on those Southeast Asian markets and you know really opening up opportunities there, I think are critical. You know, long term, I think it it kind of goes back to that sustainability discussion, which is how do we value corn? in its entirety, the product, all the things you can do with it, um, the different ways that, that we might market it and add value to it, um, I think does require some attention. So absolutely, we have to keep our eye on whether markets are open and where we're going to send those products and create stable markets for our corn. But I think we then have to look at what are all the places we can derive value from this product and let's think creatively about um, what it is that that we're marketing and how we might be able to distinguish again the work of our farmers in all these different ways so we're getting down to to the end of this podcast you know and we've had a, a wonderful conversation with darcy vetter former ag trade rep and former deputy secretary of agriculture long 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 history in ag trade policy. And we, we have uh, Ryan Legrand, CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. Any last comments or, or anything that you'd like to add that, that we haven't covered yet? I, I would just say with, with coronavirus, COVID-19, we tend to focus on how our lives have been upended and we focus on the difficulties uh, of the virtual world and some things that have been made easier actually in, in this virtual world. But 
at the Grains Council, we've been trying to put out a key message of what has not changed, and that's the status of the U.S. grain export system. We remain the most reliable and consistent supplier to the world, and that has not changed, and we don't foresee that changing. Um, so that's the message, the key message that we've been trying to put out to customers around the world. I guess I would say as we focus on trade, again, that in my experience as a trade negotiator and talking about agricultural markets, I had the opportunity to meet and talk to a lot of the customers of U.S. ag products, those who were interested in buying more from us. Could we get those barriers down? And a lot of what I heard, and again, was kind of my my stump speech when we were negotiating the TPP and trying to, to get its passage, a lot of what I heard was that it's not just that U.S. farmers are really good at creating a high quality, consistent product and that for the most part, we have good systems and logistics and, you know, to, to get the product there, but that the U.S. had a regulatory and uh, culture around trade where we tended to be consistent and not changing our policies and barriers at the border. Uh, It was informed by science. It was transparent. It was predictable. We had a rule of law that treated foreign and domestic businesses on more equal footing. And there was a sanctity of contracts. There was the whole way we do business was a, a selling point for our products. I mean, I even had some folks say, even if you can just get the tariff down low, I'll pay a little more to know what I'm getting and to do business with you because um, we like the way the U.S. does business. I don't think that has changed one iota in our business culture. And I think that U.S. business could do more to emphasize we want to remain globally engaged, we remain committed to these things. Um, But I do think that renegotiation of USMCA some of our unilateral measures may be sending a different measure on the policy side. And so it is, I think, more incumbent than ever for U.S. industry to say, we see this relationship as here for the long haul. We are committed to these global markets. We want to be your global partner. And we're still here to uh, produce those same great products and get them to you in the same way that we always have. You know, tomorrow I will be observing the anniversary of my coming to the National Corn Growers Association 19 years ago. And through those years, you know, occasionally we would do uh, some surveying, you know, a poll at Commodity Classic or a poll at Corn Congress and say, how important are, th- are these issues to you? And up until several years ago, trade didn't b- break the top five. Most years it didn't break the top 10. That's completely changed in the last two or three years. It's now, you know, in the top three or the top two. And we have a couple states where they they say it's our number one issue. And so it is a more and more important issue to the corn industry uh, and to the National Corn Growers Association. So we're just absolutely delighted to have uh, Darcy Vetter and and Ryan LeGrand here with us today. Thank you so much for being on. And uh, we certainly uh, have enjoyed the conversation and uh, looking forward to continuing it in other places. So with that, that does it for this episode of Wherever John May Roam. I'm John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. Thanks for listening and tune in next month for our next episode.
That is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. New episodes arrive monthly, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Roam is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.